Good evening, listeners. It is the 22nd of July, 2018, and you're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lori Lutz. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at Oregon State and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out all about the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests, and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or the station. Tonight, we are joined by Akash Kanagula. Welcome, Akash. Um, can you t- just get us started off by telling us a little bit about your research? Hi. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, I'm Akash, uh, and my research is about light matter interactions and uh, I do the fundamental study and apply these for applications like display devices and DNA sensing, etc. So uh, to give a brief description, uh, I work on something called uh, quantum dots and plasmonic nanostructures. So if you have, if for example, think about you have a metal substrate, me- metal and metal is full of electrons. So when, when you hit this metal with uh, photons or light, this light is going to disturb the surface of this metal, which is full of electrons, and these electrons will start oscillating. So because of these oscillations, the surface will have something called as electron cloud, or in other words, called as surface plasma. So I study the more details of this interaction of light and matter, which is nothing but the metal in this case, and utilize this surface plasma for, like I said, uh, display devices and DNA sensing. So for the first, let's kind of uh, break it down into something that, you know, my, my dad would really appreciate. He loves watching soccer games mm-hmm. and, you know, the thing he's really after is getting the best video that he can. Mm-hmm. And using some of this technology, it's kind of still in, in its infancy stage, but essentially we're going to be able to, in the near future, get better display devices, whether it be TVs or mobile devices, but also these mobile devices and consumer products will essentially also use less energy, which I think you're going to talk about in the, uh, coming forward. So our carbon footprint can also be much, much smaller with the advancements that you're working on. Yes. Uh, so to, to, to describe more details about uh, how this uh, works or where the path is right now, so the materials which are used in these display devices, for example, in the current generation of display, it's OLED displays, or you can see a brand new televisions called QLEDs, which are out by Samsung. So the difference between these, these each generation of displays are the materials like organics, OLEDs, or QLED quantum dots. So what, what I do is uh, these materials like quantum dots emit the three colors of light, red, green and blue with together we can come up with multiple colors you 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 turn on all the colors at the same time it becomes a white color or r plus g a different color so something like that 
and what what we do is we take these materials and we place it near the electron cloud or the surface plasma which I mentioned and because of this electron cloud or surface plasma that will act as, that will that will act as an amplifying agent for the emission and instead of giving a brightness of X the brightness will be like 10 times to 100 times brighter than what it has to do just because of this environment which we provide so that's a path for uh, energy efficient display devices and yes you're right uh, eventually we will be seeing thinner displays which can be transparent and all of these displays require this environment for a better efficiency and so on so we're talking um, a lot about these displays and like televisions and um, for anyone that has bought a television in the last couple of decades, you know, all these acronyms are so, uh, for me, confusing even, you know, it's like LCD and LED and, and you know, now we have like quantum LED and all of this. So, um, and what you're working to do is, is provide something that's more efficient, but it's also um, improving the uh, resolution of the display. Yes, uh, so there are two factors for display devices. One is the resolution. Definitely, we want the highest possible pixels in a particular display for a better resolution. But the second and the most important thing is the uh, number of colors which we can emit through this display. A human eye can capture all the possible colors in the visible spectrum. And we cannot emit all these colors through a display. So we started off with a black and white television long ago, decades ago and we moved on to a portable and then LCD and uh, plasma TV, OLED and QLED. So, so what is getting better with time is not just the resolution, but also the number of colors which are displaying out of these televisions are more. That's why we can find the better display. So, and the target of this technology is if we can see the television the way we see outside, the same number of colors which we can capture through a television, that's the final goal of the display technology and that's uh, our research will uh, put a step ahead in the in this technology yeah. so uh, I think we talked about this before and I, I want to take a huge leap forward uh, just to kind of see the potential for this technology uh, and, and then we'll and then we'll come back and into where we are today but one potential use of this is to use these displays in airplanes where instead of having windows that are actually really energy inefficient uh, because of a variety of things like wind resistance and then you have to cool that area and then you have to manufacture it that way there's all kinds of holes everywhere and then plus not everybody can see mount hood when you're flying into portland only people on one side of the airplane can actually see it but in the future a potential use could be to apply these inside of airplanes so that everybody in the airplane can seemingly look outside but actually they're just seeing like the best part of outside. Like if they're going over Mount Hood, then the entire airplane can see Mount Hood. But really, it's just a tin, a tin capsule that is far more energy efficient and w way more streamlined. Is, does that sound like one yes. of the... Yes. So, so that's, that's part of an upcoming technology called transparent displays where we have uh, right now the OLEDs or the QLEDs don't need to be really thick or, or the upcoming future uh, displays they don't need to be really thick. The thickness of these displays are few hundreds of nanometers. You can think about how thin, how thin they are. So the display itself is transparent. However, the circuit and the, uh, the PCB behind the display is not transparent. So there is a lot of research going ahead in transparent display. And uh, once the back end of the 
television is also made transparent this can be applied instead of windows uh, we have that the display is transparent we can see outside it could be in the planes it could be in the homes and when we turn on the display then it's completely like what we use the television so that's that's definitely a part of the path which the te- television technologies uh, going ahead in man i'm thinking you know in in high density housings in in new york city instead of seeing a you know your neighbor's brick wall you know you can have like an ocean front view <laughs> as you look out the window that'd be much better yeah, yeah something like iron man <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Okay, so how about you take us back to where you are now? You're finishing up your your PhD, right? Mm-hmm, yep. And uh, tell us a little bit more of, um, before we get to some of the entrepreneurship that, mm-hmm. that you have, uh, tell us a little bit of what you plan on doing next as you move away from, from Oregon State. So I'm graduating my PhD. It's uh, end of my fourth year of my PhD, and I'm graduating by end of last week of next month, August of 2018, and I have a, a position to, uh, in Intel in 7 nanometer division where the group works on uh, developing the process of manufacturing these 7 nanometer process and it could be probably called as I-11 process in the future and that might come up in upcoming several years. So that's the uh, particular group which I will be working for and I'm really excited to move forward in the same field which I'm going ahead in. Can I ask another question, actually? Could you give our listeners, especially those who don't consider processors in the size of nanometers, mm-hmm. what does that really mean in terms of computing power? Like, how big is a nanometer, and how big of a deal is it that our technology is moving towards this this goal? So, uh, basically, if you, uh, if you think of uh, the first generation of computers, it's as big as the rooms and buildings and so, so these are in, in back in the old times, uh, they, we use uh, they use transistors and switches for for for, for running these uh, computers and the CPU, etc. And with time, the size of transistor starts shrinking, and because of which, the speed and the energy efficiency is improved slowly. And right now, the uh, the, the technology is moving ahead for seven nanometer as the target in next few years and eventually there could be a possibility of uh, single electron transistors so the smaller the size the better the memory and the speed and efficiency energy efficiency etc yeah so we're here in the student experience center and in a in a previous university i was at they had old photos of a building that was about this size that they used in the 60s and 70s that they said the entire building was was that was a processor you'd put in an index you'd put in an index card you know at 10 o'clock at night as graduate students and you know you'd hope it would run your math and then the next morning you would come back and find out oh there's there's an error somewhere but you'd have no idea because it would take literally all night and you know poor poor graduate students then (laughs) (laughs) so the key uh importance of this uh progress in the transistor technology or the process or the speed etc is not just the design itself but the process we should be able to manufacture a few nanometers size of transistor each nanometer is like 10 to the minus 9 meters and uh, we should be able to manufacture such a small devices with a high density and that's that's a big challenge as well, along with the design of these uh, transistors uh, only. 
So that's where a lot of uh, uh, PhDs and researchers are working ahead. And that's my vision to move forward in, in my career as well. There's one more thing about your research with the um, the the metals and the um, in the photons that you were relating to biosensing, mm-hmm. and um, we didn't really touch on that. But this is really cool how you're kind of exploiting this thing that happens um, in order to detect mismatches in DNA. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that? So uh, to start with, uh, DNA is double stranded, uh, uh, as as we know, and each strand has set of chemical bonds. Uh, GCTA and uh, when there is a disease or a virus there there could be a mismatch in this uh, DNA and people want to find what exactly are the mismatches in us in us in a DNA so so they take a single strand DNA and using that single strand DNA people try to find the individual bonds and see the sequence of these bonds on a DNA single strand so what we do is we use our medium of nanostructures which can which have a capability of creating this surface plasma and we put a single strand dna of known sequence attach it to that and then we pass in another single strand dna which we have no idea about the sequence and it has a quantum dot or something which can emit this light so what happens is when we excite these fluorescent-based uh, DNA standards with a high-energy light, the electron goes to the higher energy level. When we excite these uh, orbitals, electron goes to the higher energy level, and they recombine to emit some energy in form of a light. So we use this light to find the matches or mismatch of this DNA. So the critical factor for this kind of sensing is the distance between this uh, emitting material and the metal. So we can think of this way. For example, the electron is excited and it's going into the higher energy level. It's like a person in a swimming pool getting onto the dive board. And when the electron falls back, it, it emits some light. It's like when the person jumps from the, dives from the dive board to swimming pool, there will be a splash of light. So when there is a metal closer to the electron, it cannot emit any light. Because when a, uh, we can, in an analogy, we can think that when a person is diving from a dive board, if there is a net in between, he, he just jumps into the net and there is no water splash which comes up. So there is no emission of any light which comes up. So in the same way, when the metal is closer to this electron, it doesn't allow to recombine. It just jumps into the metal and there is no, there is no light. So, so we use this distance of this fluorophore emitting light and the metal as a key factor and when there is any mismatch of this DNA standards the distance changes so based on the distance the emission intensity changes and then we can predict how many mismatches are present in this double stranded DNA. So this is something that's currently being done but with like a like a huge machine right and so this is the um what you're doing is really just something that can really advance this technology and make it on a much um, smaller scale. So currently the uh, machine used for these is as big as like half of a Mini Cooper, which you can think of. And and in our lab, we can make some microchips as big as like 50 by 50 by 50 micrometers in size, uh, which is 
extremely small than yeah. the Mini Cooper. So, <laughs> so, so we use these chips and we have a capability to measure these light intensity and detect everything using a smartphone, uh, f- smartphone's camera. And uh, in the next few months, hopefully by end of this year, our lab, uh, our research group has a cap- will have a capability to do the DNA sensing with a smartphone. So that's an extremely <laughs> wow. compact uh, device for, for these measurements. I'm I'm taken aback. Yeah, I'm it literally blows speechless. My mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a breakthrough. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. Well, then I'm then I I bet uh, we'll have the rest of your lab group on the show as well, so they can uh, they can tell us more. Continue this breakthrough. Uh, I hope uh, they will be here, and I hope they have even better stories. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of stories, uh, let's hear a little bit of how you got to Oregon State, because you didn't just land here in your advisor's lab and do amazing breakthrough science, um, but you you definitely mm-hmm. found your way here very carefully. So tell us how you got to Oregon State. Well, it would have been great to just land here. So <laughs> uh, uh, to, to talk about my story, uh, I, I grew up in a small village uh, back in India, and uh, I had a chance to go for a undergraduate in instrumentation engineering, and uh, that's through my uh, that's through inspiration through my uncle, who is a expert and a chief scientist in this area, and I had a chance to take his inspiration and move forward in the undergrad. And in undergraduate, uh, I was working on instrumentation of robotics, and I was uh, hoping to be uh, continuing my future and career in robotics. In the meantime, I, I had a chance to uh, discuss with my professor, Dr. Larry Cheng, uh, who is right now at Oregon State University. Uh, he was at University of Notre Dame, and he recognized my skills in instrumentation, and he had a vision to use these skills in instrumentation of optics and photonics. So uh, I then realized that uh, every single field right now is can be utilized in multiple other fields. It's like a hybrid of technologies, instrumentation in robotics or optical or biosensing or photonics, etc. So I had a chance to uh, visit Notre Dame uh, while my undergrad, and I think that just turned my career. Uh, in, it's, a, it's a stepping stone to my next career. And eventually I had a chance to discuss with my professor, and uh, here I am at Oregon State University. When he moved, then I had to move. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned it turned out to be a advantage and Oregon State University has amazing facilities and uh, they gave a they gave us opportunity to build to build the labs and come up with new ideas and I think that turned out uh, really well uh, in the end in terms of my research for those of us for those of you just joining us this is inspiration dissemination we're speaking to Akash and he just described his path to Oregon State uh, and his current place in Dr. Chang's lab, but I'm going to ask you to take a step back and describe an experience that you had, or describe your first experience with Dr. Chang and and why he noticed that you were very likely to succeed in graduate school. So uh, when I when I was in the University of Notre Dame as an undergraduate fellowship, so uh, Dr. Larry Chang uh, took me for a f- fellowship in terahertz circuits and devices which I don't want to go into more detail. So it's a, it's a photonics project. <laughs> and uh, so it's a, it's a very new project which he was trying to pursue in, and he wanted someone to uh, give, a, give a try and see to design something new and experiment something new. But the, the task was to uh, come and learn and uh, accomplish something in span of eight weeks 
which was a very solid challenge for me. <laughs> and myself being in robotics, uh, photonics, I have no idea. And I, 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 had a cha- I had a chance to divide my timeline in eight weeks. So the first week, I learned everything about what I could about the field. And in the next five weeks, I, I designed and experimented every possible thing I can. I was left with two more weeks to summarize all my data and my write-up and the draft. And by the end of my ninth week, probably, when I was back to India, I was able to submit a journal, and which, which got eventually published in uh, uh, IEEE, one of the IEEE's journals. So that was a task which uh, I came into at day one with no idea about the field. And at end of the eight weeks, I had a chance to publish a journal. So, so I think that's what uh, made him feel that uh, I can manage my time, I can learn quickly, I can design really well, I can execute well, and uh, that can be uh, for the future of his lab. So I think that's what made him uh, give me an opportunity wherever, whichever university he was in. <laughs> <laughs> so similar to that experience of stepping into this eight-week fellowship, not knowing anything about photonics, but very quickly having to learn and design and build and experiment and fail and experiment and fail, mm-hmm. you had a similar experience with once you have all this data, you have a story together lined up, you have some results, but you had to submit this to a journal, you said. Yeah. And tell us about that experience and you know maybe some of the frustrations you may have had when submitting to the journal because it sounds like oh the science is done now you just give it to the editor and you know off it goes into into cyberspace and is published right yeah uh, back back when i was an undergrad uh, to be really honest when when i was uh, given an eight week of time and i came to us and i i, I obviously wanted to uh, hang out with my friends as well <laughs> so at the end of six weeks when i had all the experimental data which is sufficient for a, a pretty good journal uh, i was thinking i'm done but I, I eventually realized that's just half of the story. So a researcher is not supposed to just do the survey of the technologies. It's not just finding a designing. It's not just uh, acquiring of data. It's also about summarizing the data in a and presenting it really well and writing up a complete draft of these journals. And even after that, I was thinking it's done, but it's not done uh, over there yet. We have to find an amazing journal which fits really well and format it accordingly and submit it to the editors and get the feedback from reviewers and after that modify uh, according to the reviewers' comments and suggestions and then a particular research gets published. So so, so that, that's what I, I had a chance to learn from the entire journey in a span of 8 to 10 weeks. That's that's one of the uh, major experiences. <laughs> but it's not as easy as hitting, you know, control A on your computer and <laughs> saying, you know, Times New Roman 12 font and then submitting that to the journal. Formatting is a bit of a beast, isn't it? Exactly. So uh, based on my even even right now, I, I think that uh, researchers has to uh, have to work only until the point where they can write these journals because presentation completely depends on the individual skills and uh, people have to work really hard for presenting not just the content but apart from that not not beyond that so, so but the journal community and the journal publishers expect to be in a solid format which definitely takes several days back and forth between a student and the professor and professor and the editor so this is a major challenge i've been 
watching since years and uh, eventually i had a, a step stepping stone to solve that issue as well so how about you tell us a little bit about that so you haven't just taken the mm-hmm. back seat here you're like oh i noticed this problem and i'm going to try to do something about it and there's some really awesome resources here available at Oregon State University for you to do that yes so 2 years ago when when i had a, a really good pace of publications uh, i i felt a difficulty in formatting journals as well and i i found i found no solid issues no solid solutions for these formatting journals or thesis which is even longer than journals and i've decided to take take over uh, this issue and use it as an opportunity and however this op- this wasn't complete a software based while i am in a nanotechnology or photonics or processing of semiconductors <laughs> etc <laughs> so apart from that being an international student i really was not thinking beyond my research and my jo- and hoping of getting a job or publishing journals etc so uh, w- one thing which was really pulling me ahead for this and uh, lifting me uh, to uh, not just morally uh, uh, also in terms of the facilities is Oregon State University's accelerator program uh, which i f- i still find it really amazing so accelerator program uh, took me up and uh, uh, taught me from uh, scratch i'm a researcher who has no idea in business so Oregon State University's accelerator uh, took me up and my groupmate who is now a co-founder of my startup wisedoc so they they iterated the idea they accelerated our uh, move and then they uh, right now are launching us uh, in this in this uh, fashion and over the time we had a chance to learn the business and the software side and every aspect of a startup and we are hoping to launch our software in december so basically what wise doc does is it has all the inbuilt templates of all the journals which students require they just need to open these journals write up their uh, content and they can in span of few clicks or a seconds they can get the final edited journal format which they want to if the journal is rejected which happens for 70% of times no worries it's taken care of by wise talk in span of few clicks everything will be transferred into the different journal format which they require and they can download it it could be thesis or a journal or anything so it's no more time based on this formatting journals for the listeners who are who are listening to this and thinking oh it's just formatting you know you just put a bold thing here and an underlined thing there and no for any master students who have not done their thesis yet and submitted to the graduate school formatting is a beast and a really nonsensical source of frustration and anger that will take you to the end of your will for phd students you have probably already gone through that and thought to yourself, "Oh my god, I never want to do that again." <laughs> Instead, I'm going to write in 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 LaTeX or something that does the formatting for you or that or you can code in the the formatting because for as simple as Microsoft Word is to open up and use, it stinks at doing any kind of consistent formatting issue. Uh so to have this mm-hmm. software coming online in December, WiseDoc to be able to transfer from a thesis format into a reputable journal format that at that mm-hmm. uh, is also accepted by the editors and so far you're going to stick to the uh, the engineering fields first to kind of get Wisedoc off the ground and then slowly expand into mm-hmm. the other 
uh, fields of, of science. But I think this is this is just brilliant because again, it's not only the time that it takes to format. It's, again, this sounds so silly. It's not just the time, but it's the anger and the frustration and just the. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm getting worked up thinking about it. <laughs> I'm just really anxiously waiting over here for Wysock to be up and going and ready for, you know, when I need it. <laughs> so, um, and I just want to congratulate you as well for the awards that you have won with um, Wysock. So, um, Akash and his um, business partner um, have won the Willamette Innovators Network um, Shark Tank competition this mm-hmm. year. And um, they were also, which earned them a submission into the Willamette Angel um, Conference, Conference. Mm-hmm. and there they won the speed pitch competition. And so this is, um, has been able to help you develop the, the startup even more and um, increase the um, number of employees you have. So you've gone mm-hmm. from three to 13, is that right? Yes. So after the Willamette uh, Angels Conference, it was an audience choice award with the uh, audience being about more than 100 investors. And uh, Vice Jack got uh, got in, uh, more than eighty percent of the votes, and leading wow. to a audience choice award. And uh, this award is from Palo Alto Research Center. So uh, with this, we had a major exposure, uh, and we we were we had a chance to be part of Corvallis uh, Gazette Times and many other news items. And in span of two months, we grew from a team of three to a team of thirteen. And we are actually doing beyond the expected speed of uh, launching. And uh, December is what we are really hoping to launch this uh, product, starting with engineering uh, thesis and eventually spreading across uh, other fields. And uh, hoping to launch this first at Oregon State University and uh, and have a chance to give something back. Oh, all right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So if any of you um, want to learn a little bit more about this, you can check out our blog on um, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration dissemination. And there's actually a link to a short video clip that kind of shows you a little bit more um, uh, how this works. So mm-hmm. it's it's pretty cool. So we're coming to the end of our show, and mm-hmm. we have two traditions that we ask our guests. Uh, the first is we ask for uh, some advice, mm-hmm. and I actually want to ask you for two pieces of advice. One piece of advice is your own choosing, but the second piece of advice is you're now moving on from graduate school. Mm-hmm. This is not your only project that you're an entrepreneur in. You have much bigger plans to start two or three or more and, and maybe follow in your uncle's footsteps. So uh, I please provide mm-hmm. any advice that you have for anyone else who is you know finishing a phd or in the college or in, in the engineering field but then also maybe advice for yourself to look back on as you embark on this new and exciting life yes uh, i think based on my experience one advice i would give for the undergraduate students for, to start with is have a big vision and have a big dream the the field which you are which you got into uh, is not the one which we need to confine ourselves there is a lot bigger uh, issues and uh, to, to be solved and have a really big vision. And uh, for graduate students, do not limit your capability until publishing journals or presenting in conferences. Try to convert your research into real products, into real applications, and try to, f- try to see your research and yourself 
into uh, in such a position where people are actually using the devices which contains your research i think that's a sense of accomplishment which which will be present for the graduate uh, student community and for overall i feel that uh, this world right now with such a such a pace of uh, increasing in technology i think it's really important to develop a aggressive uh, style of uh, research or or in uh, entrepreneurship as well so uh, so so in terms of uh, uh, my progress um um this is not my only uh, single startup i have uh, three more startups coming up with uh, uh, with one of it is going to be launched in next couple months and uh, the only reason i'm uh, the only reason this happens is because uh, before when i had bunch of issues i think of bunch of ideas but i do not have any guts to have a, a startup but with osu accelerator what they have done for for my career i think that's now a solid confidence and the uh, fearless uh, situation which i i came in which i'm moving forward in a, a in the pace where i am very cool and just a quick plug there for the osu advantage accelerator program that's not just limited to students and faculty and staff at osu that's also something available to the broader community so mm-hmm. definitely a really neat um resource that's available here Mm-hmm. So our second tradition is for you to choose a sound that we're going to outro on. So do you want to tell us what song you chose and why you chose it? So I chose Eminem I'm not afraid. Uh one reason being uh I think music really uh, lifts the spirits up when when someone is uh, being really low and music music is something a very key part for my my life in general and this particular song does the most of it. <laughs> and the second reason being uh it says i'm not afraid which is what i said uh, to be fearless in in terms of moving ahead to start companies or to get into uh, committed programs like phd programs which really need a mindset of being fearless and aggressive uh pace of working so these are these are the reasons i i i picked this song <laughs> yeah i think that very much represents um what you've told us about yourself and what we we've, we've learned about you. So, awesome. All right. So, mm-hmm. thank you so much Akash for being here. We have very much enjoyed talking to you and this is Not Afraid by Eminem. It's been a ride. Everybody. I guess I had to go to that place to get to this one. Now some of you might still be in that place. If you're trying to get out. follow me i'll get you you can try and read my lyrics off of this paper before i lay them but you won't take this thing out these words before i